You're listening to another podcast. A podcast not only of reviewing and discussing, but of discovery. A deep dive into a classic show whose influence is immeasurable. Your next stop, Anthology. Hello and welcome to Anthology, presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. I'm your host, Matt Hurt, and if this is your first time listening, Anthology is a podcast where I review The Twilight Zone as a first-time viewer and other classic and contemporary science fiction anthology series. For archives of all of my episodes, you can visit AnthologyPod.com. You can also like the Facebook page at Facebook.com slash AnthologyPod and follow me on Twitter at OVAnthologyPod. And if you'd like to support what I do here, you can become a patron at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer where you can get access to tons of exclusive B-roll episodes, TV and book reviews, movie reaction recordings, commentary tracks, and early access to podcast episodes that's spread across all three of the main podcast uh, shows that I do this, the Obsessive Viewer and Tower Junkies, a Stephen King podcast. So um, all that's at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And just to give a little bit of context and to give a little bit of a, of a, of a harder sell for you guys uh, to go on to Patreon if you enjoy the work that I do here. But um, for context, back in August, uh, more specifically, August 26th, I bought a new piece of recording equipment, the Rodecaster Pro 2. And I am recording this tonight on September 20th. So I've had this piece of equipment since August 26th, that it is now September 20th, less than a month. In less than a month, I have completed <laughs> 27 recordings using the Rodecaster Pro 2, totaling 23 hours and 58 minutes worth of audio. And the kind of thing that I'm pushing to you guys is that uh, four of those 27 recordings were main feed podcast episodes that are put out for free. Uh, one episode of, uh, of, of the obsessive viewer and three episodes of anthology, uh, with this being, you know, the, the fourth episode of anthology that I've recorded on the roadcaster pro two, the rest of those 27 recordings were all stuff for Patreon. So to give you an idea, like, you're scratching the surface of the stuff that I do. So um, anyway, check out Patreon, patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. If you sign up, you get charged immediately, but you get immediate access to everything on there for whatever, uh, whatever tier you join. So I personally recommend, well, the $10 tier, but <laughs> I also recommend uh, the biggest bang for your buck is the $2 per month tier. You get early access to podcast episodes and then you get, um, just just tons and tons and tons of TV and book reviews and uh, immediate reactions to movies and stuff. It's, it's in my opinion, it's a good deal, and it helps me keep the lights on here. So that's my shilling for Patreon. Check that out. Uh, consider it and consider signing up at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer. And so today on the show, I'm going to be discussing To Serve Man. It is the 24th episode of The Twilight Zone's third season, and it originally aired on March 2nd, 1962. And of course, I'll be rounding out the episode with a brief review of Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 31, Friend of a Raven. But before I get into all of that, I want to kind of talk about the the new-ish segment that I have on the show uh, that I... Uh, I'm calling from the world of fiction and science. It's just me basically talking about 
um, anything science fiction related or science fiction adjacent that I have consumed or encountered or purchased, what what have you, um, in the interim between recording episodes of Anthology. So this time around, um, I believe last time I mentioned my reviews on Patreon for the show Dark on Netflix. It is Again, it's incredible. I'm uh, eight episodes into it. It's it's just an incredible show, um, and I've been doing episode by episode reviews of it, and it's it's been so much fun to just dive very deep into this show. So, um, if you're on Patreon, uh, check it out at the two dollar and above levels, Patreon.com/slash/obsessiveviewer. But even if you don't want to join Patreon, uh, just watch the show. Watch Dark. If you're listening to this you will get a lot out of the show Dark on Netflix. It's a German sci-fi time travel show. Very, very well done uh, storytelling. Fantastic. So check it out. It's on Netflix. Um, If you don't want to do the subtitles, the dubbing is actually really good. Um, I'm usually just a hard stickler for subtitles. Um, But the actual dub work on uh, Dark is, is actually phenomenal. So check that out on Netflix. And then... The next thing I have in the world of fiction and science is that I recently watched for the first time ever 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and um, I'm going to do that for Patreon later. I'm going to do a recording for Patreon at some point, but um, it's... I really, really enjoyed it. I enjoyed it actually a lot more than I expected to. And I kind of feel like I was a little primed to like it because I had just recently watched the original from 1953 or 56. I'm not sure. Um, But I just recently watched the original for the second or third time. And I enjoyed that a lot. I I enjoyed both versions of it uh, quite a bit. Um, And what I really honed in on in the 1978 version is that sense of paranoia and panic that's spread throughout the entire movie. Um, it's kind of like that is a staple of the invasion of the body snatcher story. Um, at least in regards to the original, um, the original and everything, but here in the 1978 one, there's just an extra layer to it. I think because, it kind of came about in the in the late seventies, and it kind of harkens back to even the late sixties, like that kind of paranoid thriller sort of boom um, that was kind of spurred by, I believe, by just mistrust of government and everything. Um, so I'm thinking of like uh, John Frankenheimer, uh, his his um, his movies like uh, The Manchurian Candidate and Seconds. Um, and there was one other one that I can't remember, but anyway, um, also Francis, uh, Francis for Coppola's The Conversation. Um, so seeing, seeing that type of tone, that type of, uh, aesthetic applied to a classic science fiction story in Invasion of the Body Snatchers was really cool. Also the makeup effects, the, the visual effects were really good. Uh, really fantastic. And I'm not going to spoil it. I'm going to save this all for Patreon when I do my episode on it and the thing from 1982. But I will say, like, I was delighted by Kevin McCarthy's cameo in 1978's uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Kevin McCarthy, of course, played um, 
played Walter Jameson in the season one episode, Long Live Walter Jameson of The Twilight Zone. Um, and seeing him in the original Invasion of the Body Snatchers was a lot of fun. But his cameo in the in the remake, in the 1978 remake, is a delight. And it is, a, it is an awesome callback to the 1950s. Uh, version of the movie. So anyway, I'll have more to say on that on Patreon and everything, but I highly recommend 1978's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It's it's really cool. It's a little gross, but it's really cool. Um, so, uh, then I got two other po- points here. I recently posted on my Letterboxd account, which, uh, you can follow me on Letterboxd at letterboxd.com slash obsessive viewer. Uh, that's where I log all the movies I watch and I keep lists and everything and I write little blurbs and everything. So check that out. Um, if you're into movies and everything, but I recently published a list on Letterboxd that is my current top 25 favorite science fiction movies basically of all time. Um, and there are, I'll preface this, I'm going to rattle them off and everything here, but I'll preface this by saying I obviously haven't seen everything and there are a lot of blind spots and everything. As much as I love science fiction, there's a lot of blind spots and there are a few titles on here that I desperately need to rewatch, um, to really further, um, further lock where they are on, uh, on the list. But as it stands now, I'm going to go 25 to one, um, inter, I'm going to count down my top 25 science fiction movies just really quickly. Um, and I'll put a link in the show notes to the list on letterbox. So you guys can look at it, comment on it and all that. So number 25 is district nine. Number 24 is uh, Planet of the Apes, Rod Serling Connection. 23 is Source Code. Uh, 22 is 1933's The Invisible Man. 21 is Time Crimes. Uh, 20 is Moon. 19 is uh, Palm Springs from 2020. Uh, 18 is Back to the Future Part 2. Uh, 17 is Arrival. 16 is The Martian. Uh, 15 is the original Godzilla from 1954. Number 14 is Blade Runner 2049. Number 13 is Ex Machina. Uh, Number 12 is Alien. Number 11 is E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Number 10 is Children of Men. Number 9 is Inception. Number 8 is The Matrix. Number 7 is Sunshine from Danny Boyle in 2007. Uh, Number 6 is Jurassic Park. Number 5 is Wall-E. Number 4 is Avengers Endgame. Uh, Number 3 is Her. Number two is Back to the Future, and number one, my number one favorite science fiction movie of all time, this is going to stay there forever, and I can't imagine it it being replaced by anything, Um, but it's 2001 A Space Odyssey. Absolutely fantastic. So anyway, um, that's my top 25 favorite science fiction movies of all time. You can contact me, email me, matt at obsessiveviewer.com, tell me why I am an idiot for not including Forbidden Planet or... (laughs) like any other, any other classic science fiction movie. Uh, I will say that Metropolis is on my list, is on my radar, really, um, especially after seeing um, Fritz Lang's M uh, recently for Obsessive Viewer. Um, Metropolis is a movie that I desperately need to see. Um, so yeah. So anyway, my final thing for the world of science, uh, fiction and science is that my girlfriend Jess uh, found a copy of the book Rod Serling's Twilight Zone, um, and got it for me. She started working at a bookstore. Um, and so she's kind of like 
kept her eye out at stuff that would be interesting to me. And I wasn't really aware of Rod Serling's Twilight Zone, this publication, this book, but it's apparently a collection of 26 stories that are written by Serling that are, that includes several that are adapted from episodes of the show. Um, and I'm just really excited to dive into it. I'm, I'm just, I'm really excited to have that. <laughs> so, uh, down the road, maybe starting in January, I'm going to be doing a, uh, sort of read along thing on Patreon for the $2 and above patrons at patreon.com slash obsessive viewer, uh, where I'm going to be reading them and then posting my thoughts on each story on Patreon for the $2 and above patrons. So that'll be probably in January, but very excited about it. Um, and it looks really good. So, okay, now with all that preamble out of the way, let me get into my episode covering To Serve Man. And what I knew before going into this uh, episode, this is a unique case for anthology because um, I've already seen this episode. I saw it once um, a few years ago when they did the, um, I think it was 2019, it would have been the 60th anniversary fathom event screening of several twilight zone episodes. Um, I kind of talked about it a little bit in one of my special episodes a few years ago on the podcast. Um, but basically I had seen it once in the theater and I may have seen it once or twice afterwards on like streaming. Um, but I'd already, I'd already seen it. So I didn't have any notes necessarily for what I knew before, because I don't really remember what I knew before, but so in this segment of the podcast, uh, since I've already seen it, I really can't speak to what I knew before watching it for the podcast proper, but I did know, I, I do remember very much that I knew that the Canimates are, uh, were not good creatures and that the book was a cookbook. Um, and, and even then, like I knew this storyline so well because I'm a huge, huge fan of The Simpsons in particular. And The Simpsons, like they have obviously the Treehouse of Horror episodes each year. They have the uh, Halloween specials, Treehouse of Horror kind of anthology episode. And uh, one of the first ones, it may I think it was actually the first Treehouse of Horror special in season two of The Simpsons. They did uh, a segment called Hungry Are the Damned where Bart is telling a story about the Simpsons being abducted by aliens. And then Lisa finds a, a book that says, uh, how to cook humans. And then they do a whole bit back and forth where they blow the dust off it and says how to cook for humans. And then they blow the dust off again and it says how to cook 40 humans and then blows the dust off again. It says how to cook for 40 humans. <laughs> so it's just really funny. So I knew that that was a riff on this. And I think that that's an incredible parody of, of this episode and everything. I just really liked it. Um, but yeah, that's all I've got for what I knew before going into this. And of course, even though I kind of already spoiled it, of course, I'm going to be spoiling this episode from here on out. So first I'm going to be reading a plot summary courtesy of the Twilight Zone, unlocking the door to a television classic by Martin Graham's Jr. Um, of course, if you haven't seen this episode or if you've lived under a rock and don't know what the ending of this episode is, even though I just basically outlined it here, uh, go and watch it and then come back and listen to my review. So here we go. Plot summary, courtesy of unlocking the door to a television classic. This is the way nightmares begin. On a warm April afternoon, an alien race makes contact with, a, with the citizens of planet Earth, offering a hand of friendship. 
Their intention is to offer peace and prosperity. Within months, deserts become fields of crops because the Canamites show how to add a very cheap nitrate to the soil. The threat of war becomes obsolete when all nations implement an invisible force field introduced by the visitors from outer space. While the world slowly transforms into a Garden of Eden, two decoding specialists for the U.S. government, Michael Chambers and Pat Brody, spend long hours trying to decode a book accidentally left behind at the United Nations. The only thing they have been able to crack is the title on the cover, To Serve Man. One year later, the book still isn't cracked, and Chambers is one of the hundreds of thousands of passengers with a round-trip ticket to the Kenimit's home planet, and fails to make his escape when he is warned at the last minute by Pat that she has finally deciphered the book's meaning. It is a cookbook. Uh, so starring in this episode as Michael Chambers is Lloyd Bachner. Uh, this was his only episode of The Twilight Zone. Um, some notable credits, uh, just a couple of notable credits really quickly, is that uh, he appeared in two episodes of the original Battlestar Galactica in the 70s, in late 70s, I believe. And then uh, another notable credit is that he appeared in the movie The Naked Gun 2 and a Half, The Smell of Fear in 1991, in which he doesn't necessarily reprise his role as I understand it, but he does a parody of his role in To Serve Man. Uh, from what I understand, he pops up on screen just says like, oh, it's a cookbook or whatever. So that's kind of fun. Uh, co-starring as the Kenimits, uh, being all of all of them, uh, is Richard Keel. Uh, this was his only episode of The Twilight Zone, uh, but notable credits. I mean, he is best known as Jaws, uh, the henchman in uh, two uh, uh, James Bond movies, The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Moonraker, I will just say it here. I feel like in the in the realm of James Bond movies, I've only seen like half of half of the James Bond movies out there and everything. But I have seen Moonraker, and I I really enjoy that movie specifically because of its science fiction aspects. Like there's a whole like space thing with going to the moon and there's like a battle in space with EVA suits and everything. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun from what I remember it. I, I mean, it's been like probably 10 years since I've seen it, but anyway, uh, Richard Keel was in both of those. And then also he was in uh, happy Gilmore which is yes, fine. Um, and then uh, rounding out the cast is Suzanne Cummings as Patty. This was also her only episode of The Twilight Zone. And the only notable credits I have, because she actually, from what I could gather, she quit acting or she didn't appear in anything after uh, sometime in the mid-70s. Um, so she must have changed careers or left Hollywood or what have you. But, uh, she did have two appearances on science fiction theater in 1956. Both of them are episodes that I have not covered on the podcast yet. Uh, those episodes are man who didn't know in survival in box Canyon. So I'll be talking about Susan Cummings at a later date in the, in the lifetime lifespan of this podcast. <laughs> Uh, okay. And then writer for this episode was Rod Serling. It was based on a short story of the same name by Damon Knight, who this was his only contribution contribution on the, uh, to the Twilight Zone. His story, uh, To Serve Man was originally published in the November 1950 issue of Galaxy Science Fiction. And I want to read, uh, uh, two correspondences, um, 
that happened after uh, the episode aired in March of 1962. <laughs> I already forgot and I don't have it on my screen. Anyway, uh, in March. Um, and I, the reason why I want to say this, I'm, I'm going to read these correspondences. Um, they're lifted from, I'm reading them from uh, Unlocking the Door to Television Classic. And the reason why is that I just find this incredibly charming and very much, I feel like this, this back and forth between Damon Knight and Serling really shows like the level of respect that Serling, uh, that Serling kind of earned in in the television realm and in, in in terms of his celebrity but also i think that it really showcases his first of all his humility and just his affability and the kind of the two-way street of the respect that he gives and takes um i i just think that it, it really really speaks to rod serling's character so i'm going to read from unlocking the door to a television classic uh by martin grahams jr so uh, here we go. On March 9th, Damon Knight wrote to Serling, quote, You have made me a big man around here, and I would hate to try to estimate what your trendex, trendex was in Milford the night you did to serve man. My kids, thought, uh, my kids thought there ought to have been more to the story, but I thought it was a dandy show. I loved your monster, and I treasure your line, Dust to, des dust to Dessert. <laughs> I hear the series has not been renewed, which is a great, a great pity if true, but I trust you are busy and happy. May your tribe increase, which I thought that was a very nice uh, correspondence for Damon Knight to send to Serling. Um, and then Serling, uh, I'll go ahead and, and read his reply, quote uh, from Unlocking the Door. Uh, quote, Serling replied on March 13th, thanking Knight for the gracious note, quote, I'm not at all sure we did justice to your exceptional story, but the effort was there and the try was a manly one. Actually, the reactions to the show have been quite incredible. The mail pool for our show, for our show anyway, has been quite p phenomenal and the word of mouth usually positive and extensive. Actually, I think I piddled around with the UN too much and was unable to sustain uh, this properly, this properly with legitimate production values. If we'd done this as a motion picture and had a few more dollar bills accessible, it could have been dressed up far more handsomely. But as it is, we've done far worse with fewer results. Uh, apologize to your kids for me and explain to them what are the pitfalls of novice science fiction writers who run their ham fists all over the works of the legitimate ones. I hope we have a chance to do it again. Uh, end quote. And I just love that part where he addresses the kids' criticisms. He says, quote, I'm going to read it again. He says, quote, apologize to your kids for me and explain to them what are the pitfalls of novice science fiction writers who run their ham fists all over the works of the legitimate ones, end quote. And I just, I love that. I love that. That is giving Damon Knight respect. And then it is showing like the character of Rod Serling and the humility of Rod Serling, the, the respect he has for, you know, fellow writers and everything. And I, I don't know, I just found that I found that to be really endearing to Rod Serling's character, especially considering that this is late season three of uh, the Twilight Zone. Like he is, he has proven himself to be a writer of science fiction. And I don't know, I just, I, I find that to be really, really charming and everything. 
Um, director for this episode was Richard L. Bear. This is his fifth of seven Twilight Zone episodes. We previously saw his work way back in season two's The Prime Mover. And next we'll see from him is actually next week, uh, the episode, The Fugitive, which is, uh, is interesting. I don't, I don't remember. I'm, I feel like we have had back to back airings of, of directors or writers, but I can't, uh, aside from Serling, obviously for writer, uh, but I can't think off the top of my head, but I just think it's interesting. Next week is The Fugitive. So, okay. With the talent rundown out of the way, I am going to go ahead and go into my review of To Serve Man. Uh, so here we go. Uh, we open on Michael Chambers, he's in his room on the Kanamit ship, and this disembodied voice over the intercom says that it's mealtime for him, and I thought for, like, um, right up top, I thought that's pretty fun foreshadowing, um, the kind of emphasis on food and everything is, is kind of fun, um, but Michael is very agitated and it really gives off the impression that he has been in there for a good long while and he's frustrated. He's pounding on the door and he's getting like, he's, he's kind of like recklessly getting the sink ready and he's trying to get water. And then even then, like the Canamits come over the intercom and say, uh, you need to conserve water or please conserve water and everything. And there's this interesting way to introduce us to this moment, to introduce us to the Canamits through this, through this sequence, because we are given the like clues, the knowledge and everything that there is a dynamic that has Michael Chambers as our protagonist is in a position where he is not uh, in line with the Canamits. So it is telling us that, okay, the Canamits are bad creatures. <laughs> like they are, they're the bad guys and it's just right up top. So Michael asks what time it is. And then the Canamits, uh, they respond with a very, uh, <laughs> very obtuse, uh, there's no time in space, <laughs> which I think is kind of, kind of fun. Um, and then he asks for clarification that like, he wants to know what time it is on earth. Uh, and he says around 12 noon. And that's when we get this voiceover narration from Michael Chambers. And he's introducing us to the like idea, like what, what the story we're about to see. He's saying that, you know, we don't think about we, if you're on earth and you, and you recognize that it's noon, you don't think about noon tomorrow. You don't think about noon in the coming days. And that's the problem. That is the issue that human humanity faces. That's why this entire, like, this is why we're in the position we're in and it's fine. But, and, and I, and I will say that apparently this is the only episode of the twilight zone where a character breaks the fourth wall and addresses the audience and does narration other than Serling um, in an episode. And I have a note later on that I'll talk about, um, actually here in a second, but, um, I don't know. I don't know how I feel about it. I honestly don't know how I feel about it. And I'll go ahead and say it up, up top here that I don't know if I really like this episode all that much, which is a bummer because first of all, it's an iconic episode. It is an iconic piece of Twilight Zone lore, which obviously given what I do here on anthology and given the fact that this is my first time watching the Twilight Zone, 
like that doesn't automatically mean that a that an iconic piece of television from the Twilight Zone is going to automatically endear me to it. So I'm like that's my stance on it and everything. But there is just something about this episode that I will I will kind of work out as I review it that just does not does not compel me or does not uh, connect with me on any real big way. Um, and I'll, I'll get more into that as I go on, but basically it kind of starts with Michael Chambers giving his narration and it kind of feels like a little bit jarring because it's not Rod Serling. It is a character talking to us and it just feels, it feels unnatural. It feels weird. It like, it makes this feel like the episode is very much off the beaten path of the twilight zone. And, I don't know how really to take that. I don't know really how to uh how to kind of grasp that. But anyway, um like I said, this is the only episode with a narrator in the story. And I will say that I I kind of struggled with that piece of trivia because is it though? <laughs> because I kind of feel like the Howling Man is sort of similar in that way. Um because in the beginning of the Howling Man um, we get a character telling, like talking to us and like, I'm about to tell you an amazing story, uh, or an incredible story and everything very harried and, and, uh, and, and stressed out and everything. Um, but technically he's addressing the housekeeper. Um, so he's not talking directly, directly to the audience. So it's, it is kind of a gray area there, but I say that it kind of still technically counts because, that opening scene, he's, he's addressing, uh, he's addressing the audience or it's, it's being presented as if he is addressing the audience. So I don't know, but anyway, regardless, I don't know how I feel about it here in to serve man. And I'll talk more about it as I can, as I kind of continue on. Uh, but basically after Michael's introduction, we get a flashback, the, what kind of wavy screen kind of flashback to New York city, um, and people see a spaceship entering Earth's atmosphere and flying through the sky. Um, and right here, like right there, I am just already kind of on board with it. And even though the episode does not work for me, I do really like first contact stories. And I feel like one of the, one of the pitfalls of this episode is that these kinds of stories, these first contact stories are stories that really suit the Twilight Zone, specifically because it lends itself to social commentary and it lends itself to like by by having an by having a storyline that depicts like all of humanity's reaction to something that is a great sandbox for talking about more abstract concepts of human nature and in what we as a society are will do in the face of absolute, just complete, like un unimaginable encounters with other aliens. Um, so our kind of introduction, we get to the UN basically, and we see the UN secretary general announcing to the UN that, uh, aliens have arrived. There have been ships that have landed, uh, all across the world. And he kind of just he kind of quells any panic and says that there's no reason really to presume hostile intent. Uh, there's been several landings and we, we don't know what they want yet. They're called cannabis. We don't know what they want. Let's not presume hostile intent. Let's not, let's not screw this up guys. <laughs> and 
Like, that's interesting. And I did find it slightly interesting. As much as I will eventually get to the point where I'm I'm not really a fan of this episode, um, I do still find it slightly interesting that this episode depicts humanity's reaction to first contact with aliens as just kind of instantly accepting of the premise of them wanting to help us. Um, it makes that kind of subjugation of the human race at the end of the episode or the kind of, you know, uh, absolute genocide of the human race for, for food. Um, it makes it land with, um, it, it makes it land a little, a little hard, um, because they're basically, the episode is depicting the human race as basically lambs to the slaughter. And, in theory, in concept for this episode, I really like that. I don't think the execution of it in the episode is all that well or is all that good to really write home about, but I like the idea of it. But then on another hand, on the other hand, in another more real sense as well, I also think that that's one of the issues that I have with the episode overall, because it all just rings slightly false. Like it, I don't feel like we get from point A to point B in an organic way and point A being aliens arrive and point B being humans believe the aliens. I don't feel like the gullibility of humanity is really developed in a, in a, uh, in an organic way. It's just, it just kind of comes about. And it also feels like this whole episode itself feels like just, a large scale escalation of what we already saw in season one, uh, season one's, uh, people are alike all over, uh, because in that episode, a human is too trusting of aliens specifically because they look like humans and he ends up paying the price for it by becoming a, you know, in, uh, an exhibit in the alien zoo, basically. That episode has so much more subtext and so much more nuance to it. Whereas here we have the human race en masse accepting the Canimates reassurance that they are on earth to help humanity. And even those who are suspicious, uh, as Michael tells us, like people in government intelligence, there aren't, they are, they aren't given much to do in the way of being suspicious or even in doing anything like this episode just doesn't feel like it is it doesn't feel like there is a lot of there that it doesn't feel like there are a lot of stakes in this episode and so that kind of makes the reveal at the end feel a little bit a little bit not uh not that good <laughs> it's a good twist it is a very good twist but i think the execution of it and given the entirety of the plot surrounding it i don't feel like it is that kind of showstopper moment which i'll get to it when i get to the actual moment but it just feels i don't know i, I don't know it just feels a little bit a little bit uh a little bit slow i guess and like going back to the th to the thought of the, like the government agents and the decoding person people, um, 
they don't have a lot to do in the way of being suspicious. Like they have that dialogue between Michael and like a, a colonel or something, um, or a general, I think, um, about why, like, like what they're doing and everything. And even Michael says, like, I think we're looking at gift horse in the mouth. I think that there's nothing that everything's above board and everything. And then when Patty comes in and she says that we've decoded the title of the book, uh, the front of it, that, that just seems like, oh, okay. Like even Michael says like, oh yeah, that's, that's a very altruistic phrase to serve man. Yeah. Okay. We're good. Um, that just seems to just instantly satisfy everyone. And there, therein lies kind of the problem, but also there is a little bit of, you know, subtext or there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of social commentary there that humans want to believe, like the humans in this, in this episode want to believe something so much that while given information, they will mold it into their own thing. It's about confirmation bias and everything. And that's fine, but I don't think the episode goes anywhere with it or does anything of value with it. Like there's this level of complacency in the characters in the episode as a whole. And that makes the plot itself just feel kind of directionless in a sense. Like the immediate acceptance of the Canimates, uh, coupled with the characters just telling each other how much the Canimates have helped humanity gives us this sense of gives us as the audience the sense of being a spectator to the story. And uh, also, <laughs> I should say that Michael's kind of semi-frequent narration that pops in, uh, even like that alone also helps us or makes us feel like we're passengers in the story. However, given the fact that this episode is about all of humanity falling victim to the Canimates, I feel like it should have it should have made it should have been it should have been written and shot in a way that would make us as the viewer feel more like participants like there is a lot of telling us and not showing us and i feel like we as the audience should have been wondering throughout it like what what would what would it be like uh to have an advanced aliens alien race come down and uplift humanity um, that would have been much more immersive and interesting, something to connect with, um, because then when the rug gets pulled out from beneath us at the end, it would have had such a, a greater, greater effect. But what I feel like happens here is that there is so much of, there's so much of the, uh, so much of the episode is contingent on like characters just telling telling other characters like, oh, they've done all of these things and it's great for humanity. And even characters telling us, Michael saying like, yeah, this is a utopia now and everything. It's just, it doesn't feel like it's, it doesn't feel like it's really well thought out, if I could be honest. Um, but it's interesting because I've gone through all of this. And I've, I've kind of gone off the rails. I haven't even gotten to the opening narration. So, uh, so yeah, so in the UN, uh, we have um, a man enters and then one of the uh, or the secretary general says that one of the one of the aircrafts have landed a few blocks away and one of the representatives are on their way. And then we get the candidate entering amid some suspenseful music. And then we get Rod Serling's opening narration, which I will play right now. Respectfully submitted for your perusal. 
a canimet. Height a little over nine feet, weight in the neighborhood of 350 pounds. Origin unknown. Motives? Therein hangs the tale. For in just a moment, we're going to ask you to shake hands figuratively with a Christopher Columbus from another galaxy and another time. This is The Twilight Zone. So I really like how the canimates are described, or the, the individual canimate in this episode is described in the narration as a Christopher Columbus from another galaxy and another time. Uh, the, the part where he says another time doesn't really gel with me all that much, but I do like, well, I mean, I guess, yeah, another time because now I'm, now I'm just, after I said that out loud, um, yeah, another time because Christopher Columbus was in the past anyway. Um, so yeah, so that's fine. Ignore that. Um, but I like how he's described as a Christopher Columbus from another galaxy. But even then, like, I feel like I'm going to be nitpicking and I hope I'm, I, I sincerely hope that I'm not coming across as nitpicking, but later on when Michael refers to the Canimates as Kris Kringle, I don't know. It kind of just dilutes the colorful wording of Serling's narration in like the double effect of two narrators in this episode just feels very much like it's detaching my viewing experience even further like everything that happens in the episode feels slightly detached like i said in that long rambling preamble that i did i feel like the way that the show is telling us how the canimates are affecting humanity instead of showing us like what they show us is the canimate doing a lie detector test and in doing that that's, that's telling us that oh yes it's telling the truth that they are there for for good. And then it just tells us all the good that it does. I feel like it would have been more immersive if we saw this, if we we went through the paces of human humankind adjusting to the Canimates influence. But because we are just told that stuff and we have two narrators, we have the opening closing narration from Serling, and then we have Michael narrating it intermittently through the through the episode. I feel like that just really dilutes the uh, the overall experience and makes it kind of made me feel like I was much more detached from the episode than I would have in a kind of, for lack of a better word, more conventionally made episode of The Twilight Zone. And it just it just doesn't work for me. So uh, the Canamint addresses the UN and says that they are there to work with the humans. The intention is for humans and Canamints to learn from each other. They want to, well, not learn from each other, but the Canamints want to uplift humanity. They want to tell us, like they want to, to help us reach our potential, which is very charming, <laughs> I would say. I also really like the, the implementation of tel uh, telepathy in it. Um, I feel like that's an interesting angle and that's a very good feather in the cap of this episode because that is, it's a unique form of communication for the alien race to do, to have. It is a good way to demonstrate how much more advanced or how different they are from humanity, but it's also a, it could have been a good way or it could have been um, an easy avenue to be like, oh, okay, well, they have telepathy. So, so, you know, maybe they can control minds or whatever. And that's, that's how they're going to do. That's why they are kind of hoodwinking all of humanity into thinking that they're going to a paradise and then they're actually going to be eaten. Um, they don't do that. The episode does not go that route. And that's all for the better because it, 
lends itself more to the idea of a shared delusion among the human race that they just want to believe what they want to believe and they don't want to look too critically at this gift horse in the mouth, basically. <laughs> uh, so after the Kenmets announcement, uh, we get another Michael Chambers voiceover. He says uh, that human beings aren't, uh, he says, he says um, human beings aren't used to being addressed this way. They're not used to friendship. Like the, he says that uh, brutality is a far more universal language to us than an expression of friendship from outer space. Um, and I really like that sentiment. But again, I feel like I don't necessarily see that in the episode. There's nothing in the episode to really tell us aside from the fact that the Canimates give us force fields and Canimates kind of end world or end, wor end war across the world. But there's nothing about it that really... There's nothing there's there's a missing piece of the episode from from my from my perspective that the episode doesn't necessarily have humanity humanity having um a, a tendency toward brutality. There's nothing of that in that except for in this moment. Um and it just I don't know. And it doesn't even it doesn't even come across as the Canimates recognize that in humanity and are punishing us for it. It's just like, hey, they're hungry. Let's let's get some get get some food and everything. It just it feels really clunky and and uh improperly developed, I would say. So uh the uh UN secretary asks the candidate if he'd be willing to do and uh, to be interrogated. He's like, "Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. We're here to help you." Um and he says, "We'll not force anything on you." Uh, you can, you will take this information and do with it what you will. Um, we will not force anything on you or, or persuade you to do anything. But, and then in the next breath, he says, or thinks, he says, tomorrow we will introduce a new power source that will be able to power entire countries for, for just dollars, uh, and be like completely change like the economy and everything. Like, just like a, just a perfect thing thought, <laughs> like a perfect, uh, catch-all kind of solution for humanity. Um, and then we get, we get the representatives kind of chiming in and everything and asking questions. And the candidate says, all we ask is that you trust us. And then he puts the book down and leaves the book. And this is another kind of thing that I'm hung up on in this episode, because the book is this very peculiar dangling thread. And I feel like it's an un not necessarily unresolved dangling thread thread, but I feel like it's not properly properly kind of re resolved aside from the translation. Um and what I mean by that is that I was left wondering is this is it a test left by the Canimate to determine if the human race is intelligent enough to decode it and thus not not worthy or not uh or in uh, and if they are if if humanity is intelligent enough to decode it are they then worthy of being uh excluded from being herded to the Canimit home world for food like is i feel like the episode is almost trying to say that the Canimit left it there as a test for humanity 
uh, to decide whether or not humanity would be, you know, a food source or if they would, or if humanity, not they, I, I swear I'm a human, um, if humanity would be worthy of being actually uplifted and actually being included in the galactic societies and everything amongst other alien races. Um, basically, I wondered if it was supposed to be a test of humanity's worthiness to an intelligent universe. And I wish that that was explored further because at this point throughout the, and, and with the knowledge of this episode as a whole, I really, I, I feel like I'm grasping at straws and I feel like I shouldn't be. I feel like this is something that should have been developed. And I feel like it's me trying to just read into the episode something, something of value, uh, on an intellectual level, because really I don't get much else from it or anything. And that's, it's a bummer. It's honestly a bummer. <laughs> it is, it is kind of a bummer. Um, but anyway, uh, we get, uh, kind of a montage, the, and I love this effect so much. Uh, there's newspaper, like the spinning newspapers that pop up. I, I love that. I just, I unironically love that, um, in, in shows and everything. So, then we have Michael Chambers having another voiceover saying that it was the age of Santa Claus and, uh, and they, de they descended on us like locusts, um, and hardly anyone second guessed their intentions, except for those of us in the government. And then he introduces himself, says like, this is where I enter the act. And I was a code breaker for the U S government, um, and then we get him in the office and he's talking to a couple of uh, high ranking military people, I think. Uh, one of them, at least, is a general. And they're talking about trying to decode the Kanemit book. He is very much clearly struggling with it. Um, and he kind of goes on to say it's not impossible, but it's 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 really, really difficult and it's going to take some time. And... I. <sighs> Again, I hate, I really, really hate to be dogging on this episode, especially since it is one of the big episodes of the series. But again, given that he, that Michael Chambers is one of the people in charge of decoding the book, I really wish that there was more to his story than what we got. For example, I wish that the flashback that we got, the entirety of the episode, basically, I wish that that flashback I wish that it was being shown to us specifically to convey a sense of regret in Michael because Michael is living on a spaceship in transit to become alien food and in an, in a, in a more, in a more Matt Hurt friendly episode, I will say, uh, he would be lamenting that his work decoding the book failed and he was, he and his team were the cause, were, were the cause uh, indirect causes of something that cost countless human lives, perhaps the entire human race and condemn them. That is some heavy stuff that it, it's not touched on at all. It's not explored. It's not anything that's seems to be on the radar of the episode, uh, of the story being told, but, and I don't necessarily need that. I don't necessarily need that. I kind of want it. I think that it would be interesting, but I don't need it. But in place of it, I need something. I need something more concrete. I need something more, more focused on the story and more focused on developing it because I don't really have that. Um, yeah, I don't know. And there's 
a little bit of a depiction of the distrust within the U.S. or within the American government, um, because the general thinks that the that all the good stuff that the Canamid are doing uh, is just parlor tricks, and then Michael even disagrees and says that. You know, I have a funny feeling that by trying to decode this book and everything, we're looking a gift horse in the mouth. And then, uh, and then again, this is, uh, this is somewhat kind of just talking to the audience, not necessarily talking to the audience in this case, but it is something that's basically setting up something that is then told directly to us instead of shown to us. And that is a big, big problem for me. But basically he says that when the world is done with famine and war, it'll be a garden of Eden. And that is a line that I honed in on pretty quickly and wish was explored a little bit further because I really wish that the Canimates helping humanity connect uh, their, their helping of humanity. I wish that it connected more to this idea of making, making earth a garden of Eden, because as it stands in the episode, it feels like an incomplete thought, or at the very least, an idea that's just not fully explored. I think it would have been interesting, much more interesting even, if the Canimates gave humanity all the answers and all the technology specifically to create complacency and to sub- subjugate humans and bend them to their will, or in this case, to their dinner plate. Um, I wish that that was, I wish that that was the focus. I wish that that was the focus and maybe it is, but it's just more subtext than anything. But I wish that there was a little bit more to it to, to really kind of hone in on that as, as the intention of the candidates. Um, and I just, I don't know. I just, I have a lot of problems with this episode. Not that it's necessarily a bad one, but it's, it's just not, it's just not, it's mid tier for me, maybe lower tier. No, it's mid tier. Anyway, uh, Patty then comes in and announces that they've cracked the title of the book. Um, and I had forgotten at this point, and this is an interesting thing. I had forgotten that the title to serve man was revealed this early in the episode. And I put that in my notes when I was watching it. And then I paused it and I realized, well, we are halfway through the episode. And I think that that is a big signifier, a big indicator of some of the issues that I have with this episode, because we are now halfway through the runtime of this episode, and it still feels like it's build up. It still feels like it's establishing story. It still feels like it's establishing characters. This is the introduction of Patty, the character who will then in turn in like 15 minutes in, in the runtime deliver an iconic line of the Twilight Zone. And she is a very secondary or tertiary character. Um, and yeah, I just, I find that to be a very, a very bad, a very, a very big, um, mismanagement of, of the, of the storytelling and everything. Um, and then (laughs) as I was watching it, I did kind of lament the fact that I knew the ending I, I, that I grew, grew up knowing, knowing the ending. Um, because I really wonder how I would have felt about it if I could basically wipe my memory of to serve man and see it and see if I would have been able to guess or been, or if I would have been surprised by the ending. Um, but I can't. So, oh, well, uh, like, like one episode out of 156, um, 
that I know the ending and I like like that's not a bad trade off. Um, although there are there are episodes that I knew the ending of, but anyway, um, this scene ends with uh, the general like looking at it, looking at the title of the book, and saying, "To serve man, I hope so. I fervently hope so." And that's fine. That's fine. It's it's foreboding. It's it's interesting. That's fine. Um, so then we get this big like UN council hearing. Uh, that I was kind of, um, impressed with just the scale of it. Like we, like, it's a huge set with a lot of extras. I don't know how much of that is stock footage. I don't know how much of that is that now that I'm thinking about it, it's probably all like has to be stock footage. But anyway, I just wondered how they filmed it if not, but I couldn't find anything to that effect. But, um, we then see like they bring down a screen, which, uh, I read in Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic that that screen was the same screen from The Obsolete Man that is in, uh, that is in, uh, uh, Bookman, Bookman, uh, his, his apartment. Anyway, the candidate passes the lie detector test and he's asked, uh, what is the motive of the candidate? And he says to bring to you the peace and plenty, I think that we have, and he says the utopia of earth would be your reward. And at this point, I'm kind of curious, is the episode about complacency and a lack of resolve to solve humanity's problems? This is basically about a an alien race, an advanced race coming down and solving all of our problems, leaving us to be in a place of complacency where we don't have to solve problems. We don't have the issues anymore because, you know, we've, we've gotten, we've gotten it resolved. And since it is someone helping us along, we are now, uh, for the rest of our short lives, as we become food for this alien race, unbeknownst to us, we are stuck on the training wheels. We have the training wheels permanently affixed to us. And that breeds a level of complacency if that is the intention, I could get behind that. I can think that that's pretty good. But unfortunately, I still think that the episode is just too cluttered with things. And that is not like whatever the episode is trying to say is not clearly defined or is not clearly shown to me at least. Um, so yeah, so then we get a montage that shows that different, uh, different countries across the, around the world are very much thankful for the Canimates. Uh, I think it says that the French are disp- uh, disarming half of their stockpile of arms and, uh, and the Japanese are thankful for the Canimates, uh, the Canimates and South America as well. And then we get again, Michael's, uh, next voiceover that this is where, <laughs> Uh, this is where it's just, again, he's telling us these things. We're being told what, what the candidate are doing. We're being told the state of the humanity. We're not being shown it. That is like, it's, it's very bothersome to me. Uh, so Michael says that the, the militaries are basically disbanded and the world, uh, became a utopia. And then we see people lining up to go into spaceships, uh, the same spaceship that was used in, uh, Forbidden Planet. And I think, uh, I think it was, yeah, it had to been used in the, the, um, the end of the monsters of do on Maple street. And I think another episode of the twilight zone, um, uh, third from the sun, I think. So anyway, um, uh, we see people being weighed as they're loaded up on the Kenemet ship, which I think is kind of fun because it kind of shows like, okay, the, like it's showing, 
showing us the um, detail that the Canimates are doing, just in, in like openly doing without regard because they know that they've got the, they've got all of humanity hook, line and sinker in the palm of their hand. Uh, so they can go ahead and weigh them <laughs> as they come in, which can be explained away as them like figuring out like weight distribution for the, for the trip, even though it's space. So I don't think so. But anyway, I just think that's, that's kind of fun. And we see people talking in line about how basically how this is like going to be a perfect vacation. And um, speaking of the Canimate homeworld as this absolute paradise and how there's everything, everything they could imagine is going to be, is, is going to be, uh, depicted or, or is going to be at their finger, fingertips. And it, again, it's just showing that humanity is completely duped by the Canimates. Um, and they're boarding the ship like lambs to the slaughter. And, I've got to say, there's something that's kind of special about the way that 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 veil falls over the humans in this episode. Um, Like my criticisms of this episode are not to say that this particular part of it doesn't work in some regards. Like this blissful ignorance of humans is highly relatable and unfortunately it's timeless. If you want to attribute it, it it also has this broad nature to it. If you want to attribute it to religious zealotry or in our more modern times, uh, you know, um, alt-right crazy extremists and everything. Um, yeah. Like you, if you want to do that, Trumpism, like that has, it has applications for that. It has, this episode does have, uh, far reaching applications for like human nature. It's just not the focal point that I want it to be in the episode. That's my big hang up. But, uh, then we get Michael who's bored at his desk. Uh, it's uh, a lot of time has passed and Patty says she's leaving for the night. Um, they kind of just talk about how, you know, without war, without any kind of, uh, without any kind of, um, uh, intercontinental conflicts or anything. There's no codes. There's no secret messages, uh, to, to decode. So their jobs are pretty much dull now. And we get this pretty strong, uh, uh, scene between Patty and, <clears throat> excuse me, and Michael, um, because Patty asks like, oh, how many candidates are, are here now? And he says, oh, a few thousand. They have embassies in every country now. And then, and that for every one of them that comes, a few thousand of us go to their world. And this is interesting tidbits. These are interesting. Um, this is interesting information that's being given to us. Again, my problem is it's being told to us. They're telling us this. It is just, it is making us, making us as the audience to be spectators of it so that it kind of, for me, in my opinion, does not, the ending does not land because it is, it's just, it's just, we're just told what, what, uh, what the whole point of the episode is. We know what, like we're told what's going on instead of being shown. And that is just a, I have such a hang up on that. Um, and then Michael kind of espouses that he's amazed at the ease of humanity to adjust to such a big change. And like, he touches on that a little bit, but it's not really explored too much. Um, and, and again, it's just, it's kind of hollow. It feels kind of hollow. And then he goes on to say that he's on a 10 year exchange group, uh, waiting list. And Patty says that she's on the wait list too. 
Um, and then, so she doesn't have anything to do. So she's like, I'm, I guess I'm gonna, you know, work on, work on decoding that book. Um, and there's like kind of that throwaway line that doesn't really have much bearing on anything, but she says like, it's interesting because you would think that, you know, decoding the cover and the title would be something that would be, uh, you know, beneficial to decoding the rest of it and everything. But it's interesting because they're, their uh, capital letters are different from our capital letters or their use of capitals or lowercase is different. And that just feels like fluff. Like, I don't, why do we need that detail? The only reason we need that detail is so that we can, so that we're not questioning, like, why did they not decode it? And why did it take like a year for them to decode it and everything? And that I feel like is kind of, uh, with all due respect to Serling, <laughs> It feels kind of lazy. And I know that there are production issues associated with this episode um, that was like they had to reshoot a lot of stuff because Serling wasn't satisfied. And then he was even on vacation during uh, production. So Buck Houghton kind of had to kind of take the reins of, of finishing up the production and everything. So uh, there there are some issues there, but it just feels like the it, it just feels like there's just not enough here. I don't know. Um so then, uh, we get kind of get, getting to the, one of the closing scenes, really. Uh, we see the ship again. We see, uh, an announcement, or we hear an announcement, uh, that flight number 914 from, uh, from Earth to our planet is boarding now or whatever. And I do like, I do think that there's a little bit of fun there in that the Canimate homeworld isn't even named. Like the Canimates aren't even telling us what the name of their planet is because they know that we have, that they have us and they know that we're dumb and we'll just go along with it. And it's because the candidates have exposed the gullibility of humanity, which I can get behind. I can get behind that. And I think that that's fun um, and interesting. And then we get the big moment that I feel comes about way too suddenly and not with that and without any proper buildup, but we see Patty rushing through the crowd as Michael is entering the spaceship. And she says, uh, she says, no, Michael, don't board, uh, the, the book, the, to serve man, we've decoded it. It's a cookbook. And then he kind of takes a beat and then he reacts to it. He tries to rush past the Canimate. Canimate pushes him into the ship and raises the ramp and then does this weird, like, like having his arms up kind of thing, uh, as he's kind of looking at the crowd and, and then that's it for that. That's it for humanity on planet earth. And I feel like, uh, I feel like that's a little bit of a disservice because, and I mean, I guess, I guess we can infer a lot from that because, the candidates are there. They, they, they are occupying earth. There is no, like they have dismantled any, any, any military action. They've dismantled the military of the, of the world through this faux peace garden of Eden kind of thing. So, and, and they've lulled humanity into a place of complacency so that even if humanity rose up to try to defend themselves, they're too complacent. They're too, too gullible. There's, they're too, there's the stakes are what, like the, the, there's no way, there's just no way that, that humanity could survive. 
Um, but I, I don't know. It just feels like I wish that there was more to that, but I feel like overall there's this sense of, uh, lethargy, 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 um, in the plot that makes that reveal that it's a cookbook. It makes it not as effective as I think it could be because in that moment, the only suspense or shock that I feel comes from the music cue that comes up like, like half a beat after she says it. And like the timing is just a little bit off and the reveal isn't properly handled that it just doesn't land with the stature of like, like, like a big, big finish thing. And I do think that that's interesting because I, I mentioned before the production issues, um, and everything and how Serling was dissatisfied with it. So they had to reshoot a lot of dissatisfied with the rough cut. So they reworked it, reshot it and did all that. Um, and one of the things that they had to kind of cut, um, was scoring it. So, uh, the music editor, uh, in order to save time in the production, just kind of said like, yeah, we, uh, we can just use stock music. It's fine. Um, and it's, I think it was directly because they had to reshoot uh, so much of the episode so extensively that the music editor was just like, yeah, we can use stock music, recycled music from, I think the episodes from season two back there, um, to see, to save production time. And that's, I don't know. It's, it's kind of a bummer, but, uh, then we have our last scene, which is Michael on the spaceship in his cell. A candidate comes in and says that he hasn't eaten enough and Michael's defiant and he throws the plate down and the candidate, uh, tells him to eat. And he says the very good, very fun tongue in cheek line. We wouldn't want you to lose weight. And then, uh, as the candidate leaves or after the candidate leaves, uh, Michael turns to the camera and he gives this soliloquy about um, warning, basically warning that all mankind will be where he is someday. He says, like, are you here with me or will you be later? Like, ever, we're all doomed to be here and everything. And I, I don't know. I don't necessarily get the message here. <laughs> I'm like, what I'm kind of sussing out from it is that it's just a, a message of, of don't be complacent. Don't accept something that's too good to be true. Don't let yourself be hoodwinked by something promising you the world or something that isn't backed by, like, don't, like, keep your guard up. I, I don't know. But it just feels a little bit like we're, I think it doesn't, it doesn't give me any, it's, it's not as thought provoking or captivating to me because I feel like throughout the run of this entire episode, I've been a spectator to this. I haven't been a participant in, uh, the, the display of humanity. I haven't been engaged enough by it to wonder what we would do, what I would do, what real life humanity would do, what modern humanity would do. Um, and that's just kind of, uh, kind of a bummer. <laughs> it's really kind of a bummer. Uh, but anyway, we get the closing narration from, uh, Rod Serling, which I will play right now. How about you? You still on Earth or on the ship with me? Well, it doesn't make very much difference because sooner or later, will all of us be on the menu? All of us. The recollections of one Michael Chambers with appropriate flashbacks and soliloquy. Or more simply stated, the evolution of man. The cycle of going from dust 
to dessert. The metamorphosis from being the ruler of a planet to an ingredient in someone's soup. It's tonight's Bill of Fare from the Twilight Zone. And I honestly forgot that I included Michael's <laughs> little soliloquy there. So there you go. Um, so I think overall, like the kind of, I will say that the tongue in cheek nature of the closing narration is quite fun. I do. I do like that. Um, like this, I think at the end of the day, this episode could have been a much more heavy social commentary kind of warning episode, but it retains this level of borderline silliness that I can sort of respect, but I also feel like it doesn't push it hard enough. Um, and I don't know. I think, I think overall that this episode, the episode itself is just okay. And honestly, it's a bit sloppy and underwhelming and I hate to say it, but I feel like it is in the grand scheme of things, maybe a bit overrated (laughs) in terms of the cultural impact that it has enjoyed over the decades. I feel like it's, it's not, it's honestly not that big of a standout episode for me. And that is such a, such a bummer to, (laughs) to say, uh, because I want to, I want this to be a showstopper. I want this to be a big, big episode, but it's just not for me. Um, so I have a bunch of trivia because this episode is very, very big on pop culture. Um, so yeah, so let me kind of rattle off some trivia here. Um, kind of on that same note about the production issues and everything, uh, they ended up using stock, but not stock footage, but they, they used, um, scenes, uh, of the spacecrafts. Uh, like the one of the opening scene of the spaceship in the, in the sky. Uh, they used that, they used footage from the movie, the day the earth stood, stood, oh my God, the day the earth stood still, but they used different sound effects for it. Um, and then, uh, later in the episode at the end, when we see the departing Kanemit ship, uh, that was taken from the movie Earth versing, versus the Flying Saucers, also with different sounds uh, enabled or in it. Um, and there were some interesting differences with the source material. So the short story uh, by uh, Damon Knight, which I think is just a killer name. I love that name, Damon Knight. That's just really cool. Um, but anyway, uh, in the short story, the aliens are short and look like hairy pigs that walk upright and go by the name Canimit, uh, like the, like the collective name is Canimit, uh, and the singular version of that is Canima. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's basically the only difference that I had from, from there. Um, <laughs> uh, let's see. And then the newspaper that Patty picks up is the actual newspaper from June 14th, 1961 of the Los Angeles times. Uh, yeah. Um, and then, uh, interesting to note that the voiceover on the Canimit spaceship is actually done by, uh, Joseph Ruskin, who played the genie in the season two episode, the man in the bottle. Um, and that is because, well, I don't know if that's necessarily because, but, uh, Richard Keel, uh, wrote in his book that he had basically gotten, uh, in his autobiography, um, and this information is coming from unlocking the door to television classic by way of that. But, um, Keel had said that he was basically hired 
for this episode of The Twilight Zone while he was working on um, a movie. He was on set for a movie, filming a movie, and he worked out with the director there that he could allow for a week. Uh, they would shoot around his schedule so that he would allow for the week to go uh, and shoot The Twilight Zone. So what he did was that he he drove from that set to <laughs> to The Twilight Zone on limited sleep, went in there, went through hours of prosthetic makeup and everything, and then they didn't necessarily tell him that he was going to be recording voiceover. Uh, so right from there, in that state, he had to go and record voiceover narration and voiceover ADR and everything uh, for the episode. And he he said that he feels like because of that, he wasn't uh, he didn't give as good a performance and that's why they, they dubbed it over with, with Joseph Ruskin. Um, I think that it, what it comes down to is that with the, um, I think, I think what happened was that Serling didn't like the rough cut of the episode and then with reworking it and reshooting it and everything, uh, Keel's schedule was not available to have him come and re-record stuff. So that's why they brought in Joseph Ruskin. So it's interesting to hear the kind of two perspectives of, of why that was the case. Um, and then of course, uh, the retractable stairway, as I said before, that leads up into the spaceship is the exact same prop used in Forbidden Planet. Um, and then, oh, that was the other episode that it was used in on Thursday. We leave for home, which is an episode that I have not seen yet, obviously, because I think it's season four or five. Um, yeah. And then a uh, final piece of trivia is that the flight that is about to take, uh, take off with chambers is flight number 914, which is the telephone area code for the town Serling lived in. Um, so I'm not sure if that was Binghamton or where let me actually do a quick quick check here 914 area code um yeah so i don't know uh 91914 uh westchester county new york so yeah uh around where binghamton is i believe uh but anyway uh yeah so that is it for my thoughts on to serve man um if you have any like feedback or any any thoughts, like if you want to say how horrible I am for crapping on this episode that uh, enjoys a lot of pop culture fame and uh, big stature of being a classic Twilight Zone episode, please direct all hate mail to me uh, and you know email me at madatobsessiveviewer.com. But uh, but yeah, to round out this episode, this pretty lengthy episode, I think, um, I am going to share my thoughts on an episode of science fiction theater. So I'm going to play the music now. Uh, this week's episode of science fiction theater is Friend of a Raven, which is season one, episode 31. Uh, it originally aired on November 26, 1955. And... Uh, was directed by Tom Grease, written by Richard Joseph Tuber, and stars Virginia Bruce, Richard Eyre, William Ching, and uh, Twilight Zone uh, alum, or future alum in this case, Barney Phillips. And uh, yeah, so okay, that was my first time trying to just talk over the entire music, so hopefully that didn't sound too bad. Uh, but the plot synopsis, courtesy of IMDb, is... 
a teacher of the deaf and a truant officer visit an apparently deaf-mute boy to determine why he has not been attending school. The teacher finds that the boy has an uncanny, uncanny ability to communicate with animals in spite of his disability. And so, as is normally the case, we get a pre-show uh, demonstration from Truman Bradley, the host, where he walks into the screen or walks up, walks into frame, and says, "We like to think that man is the highest form of life on our, on Earth." And then he talks about how we have, you know, our five senses. And how those senses dictate how we interact with the world. And it is a like we have all of these senses that help us, you know, live our lives and everything. But what if humans had a sixth sense or a seventh sense? What like what if we had instincts from the animal kingdom that evolved out of us that we no longer have and what if we could take him back or whatever uh and then the kind of demonstration he does is that he has the rattlesnake in kind of an enclosure and he says that a rattlesnake can see without its eyes and he says that this rattlesnake has a piece of tape over his eyes he assures us that he did not put the tape on his eyes um, but he lowers a balloon with warm water into the tank and without hesitation, the rattlesnake, uh, with his eyes covered, gets the balloon and snaps it and the water hits the, hits the floor. Um, and he explains that, you know, the rattlesnakes have a certain extra sense where they can sense heat or whatever. Um, and he says, will humans, like he, he posits that humans may develop extra senses in the future. Will the day ever come that we do? Um, and then we get into the episode and the episode is, it's fine. It's okay. Um, basically we have two characters, a truant officer and the teacher that are coming to this house and asking why the young boy named Tim, uh, has not been in school. Like the plot summary says, and in that encounter, the teacher, um, the teacher is asking like these questions and he's kind of nodding along. He's responding slightly, um, in terms of like nodding his head and in the affirmative, if there's a question that she asks and the truant officer who I feel like it does a little bit too big of a performance there. Um, I don't know which actor I assume it was maybe Richard Iyer or William Ching. I'm not sure. But anyway, he does, this he's very much like this uh, obnoxious kind of character. He's very aggressive and he immediately thinks that the kid's lying and he says, you know, he's uh, he's clearly lying not to not, uh, so he doesn't have to be in school. Like he can clearly he and hear and talk and everything. And he's like badgering the kid. He's just really abrasive and tactless. And it just feels like really off putting and just like it doesn't really. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't demonstrate or it doesn't give me the sense of like, like the good per like good cop, bad cop thing, which I think is what they were going for in, in some sense. Um, but I just feel like it wasn't really, uh, wasn't properly, properly handled, but the truant officer is kind of dismissed and the kind of main crux of the plot involves, uh, the teacher and, uh, the boy, Tim and Tim's father, Walter, who, the question comes down that, uh, whether or not Walter will, uh, have, uh, you know, basically have a, uh, authorize an, a, uh, oh God, a, an operation to restore, 
uh, Tim's sense of, of hearing and speaking and everything. And that's kind of the big dilemma. He doesn't want his son to be kind of a, an instrument of science because it becomes clear that he, uh, that the, that the boy can interact with, with animals. He is on, like, he is able to, uh, interact with animals. He picks up a, a snake and kind of coos it. Uh, he, he saves, he saves the, the teacher's life by calming down the rattlesnake and everything. And, uh, she's very grateful and everything. And, Overall, it's like it's a fine episode. It's it's interesting where it leads is kind of sort of a downer a little bit because um, the question is whether or not he should have this operation and thereby kind of lose his extra sense. But then uh, but if he does that, then science will gain so much knowledge because they'll be able to talk to him and learn about what he experienced with animals. Like he's able to like run with deer and he has a friend that's a raven, uh, which is why the title of the episode is friend of a raven. Um, and that's kind of the dilemma. That's the, the dilemma. In, in addition to that, Walter does not want Tim to be a subject for scientific research. And so there's some good conflict there, but the way it's resolved kind of feels like it kind of feels like a little bit it, a little bit like it doesn't do justice to Tim, uh, to to the possibility of Tim losing his extra sense, and that's kind of a bummer to me because it it feels like not that cohesive. But it's a pretty good episode. It's pretty solid. Uh, Barney Phillips is a lot of fun. He's really good. He's very kind of um, not not necessarily fun, but he's it's good to see him in it because he plays like a um a speech therapist or uh yeah speech therapist and that's fun. Like it's good. He works with kids and everything. And, uh, he's kind of, he's, he's giving Walter the insight into what the scientific achievement of, or the scientific research that can be gained from Tim being able to communicate, uh, would mean. And I think that's an interesting kind of, uh, addition to the overall dilemma of the episode, but overall friend of a Raven was pretty solid. It was okay. Um, yeah, it was all right. <laughs> so that's my review of Friend of a Raven, as short as it may be, but this is a lengthy episode in its own right. Uh, I want to just say thank you guys for following me along and uh, let me know what you thought of To Serve Man. Next time on the podcast, we're going to do episode 89, which is going to cover The Fugitive, uh, season three, episode 25 of The Twilight Zone. And uh, my bonus review will be Science Fiction Theater Season 1, Episode 32, Beyond Return. So, uh, once again, just want to say thank you guys so much for listening and for, uh, for joining me on this. Let me know what you thought about all this. And once again, soft sell here. If you want to support me on Patreon, check it out. Patreon.com slash Obsessive Viewer. Tons of content. Uh, and it helps me keep the bills paid and... Uh, motivate me to keep doing this so anyway uh thank you guys so much for listening and i'll see you in the next episode and now enjoy this short clip from our patreon exclusive rss feed for the full clip and more exclusive patreon content such as early access to episodes tv book and movie reviews and reaction recordings commentary tracks and patreon poopery episodes Go to patreon.com slash obsessive viewer and become a patron at the minimum rate of $1 per month. Thank you and enjoy.
And then here is where we get a very, very interesting moment. Um, Charlotte asks if he knows anything about the cycle of 33 years, which like saying that out loud right here on this recording, it makes me feel like that is a very, very significant thing. Like it is like saying that out loud, like the cycle of 33 years. I love it so much. <laughs> so she says that a year isn't exactly 365 days long. We're always a little bit out of sync. Uh, but every 33 years, everything is perfectly in sync. Everything is perfectly aligned. The planets are in the right rotation and the right space and everything. Um, and uh, she's uh, like, just that kind of broke my brain a little bit. I'm very, very curious about that. This podcast was edited and produced by Matt Hurt and presented by ObsessiveViewer.com. You can find links to all of our shows at ObsessiveViewer.com slash podcasts. For exclusive bonus content, including reviews, commentaries, and B-roll episodes, you can subscribe to our Patreon at Patreon.com slash ObsessiveViewer. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.